Good morning. This morning we're reading from Luke 6 and we are starting at verse 12 through to 36. One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you, hear me, who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It is lovely to be here. It is lovely to see so many people. Um, we are going to be in Luke 6 in that passage that M read for us. Could you please keep it in front of you? We're going to pray and, we'll be, and I'll begin. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we look, we pray it every week, but please don't let it be um, uh, ho-hum to us or don't let us treat this plea with contempt. But we do ask that by your spirit, through your word, that you would be transforming us in the likeness of Christ to your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever noticed the continued uh, popularity? Oh, sorry, youth church. I always forget you guys. I'm so sorry. Have you ever noticed the continued popularity of the restoration shows on television? Anyone here a a fan of some of those sort of restoration type shows? Been around for a while, probably started initially with shows like The Block, 
But there's, there's been continuing, growing target audience for these shows. I mean, there's things like Grand Designs and uh, American Restoration, Listed Sisters, Fixer Upper, Wheeler Dealers. You could go on and name anything. And it seems to me, and Danny, I forgot my clicker, so can you please put these slides up? Uh, it seems to me anything from cars to castles, anything from petrol pumps to old pennies, the concept of restoring things to their former glory, it's an appealing idea. It still holds weight. And now I'm not personally... Anyone here hooked on any of these shows, by the way? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, there's a couple of begrudging. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not personally hooked on any of these shows, but the concept of restoration is an idea I love, especially Christianly speaking. In fact, I think it plays a major part in our Luke passage today. Last week we saw how Jesus has the right of definition, right, as the author, as the creator, as God. He has the right of definition. But this week we're going to see how he also has the right or the power of redefinition but what i really mean by redefinition is restoration in fact we're going to look at these these concepts under the headings in your outline if you've got an outline if you don't have one grab one you'll see here i want to take us through this passage to see how jesus restores a godward notion of prayer he restores a godward notion of discipleship and leadership he restores a godward notion of blessing and woe and a godward notion of listening living and loving This is what we're going to see here. Feel free to take some notes, but let's go under the first heading. Jesus restores a Godward notion of prayer. Read it with me there in uh, Luke 6, verse 12. It says this, One of these days, one of those days rather, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Now I'm just going to stop there. It's a simple descriptive verse. It's one that's easily overlooked as you read it, but I want you to stop specifically here and ask yourself a couple of questions about this verse. Firstly, what does it tell us about the nature of God and the nature of prayer? And secondly, how will that impact you personally? I mean, I want to do this quickly because if you're part of our Bible study groups, you should have done this in Bible study this week, but I want to make sure that no one misses the significance of a verse like this for our own understanding of both God and prayer. And I want to do that because I think this verse speaks to a really common misconception on both fronts. The first of which is a common misconception. Look, I used to get asked all the time teaching scripture at school. And the question was basically, if Jesus is God, (coughs) it's my best 10-year-old impersonation, if Jesus is God, then who is he praying to? Right? And it's not just primary school students who would ask me that question. I have also had long conversations with people, uh, particularly from the Jehovah's Witness um, group, that would say a similar thing. Their question is, and to their way of thinking, it seems nonsensical for Jesus to pray to God if he is indeed God himself. Talking to yourself is the first sign of madness. What's going on here? Who, who raises Jesus? If Jesus is God, who raises him from the dead? You get those, you, you feel me? I want you to understand the concern. I understand the concern. Can you feel it? It's a good question. It's why a proper understanding of the Trinity or the Godhead as revealed by Scripture is so important and necessary. Okay, the Trinity, the word doesn't appear in the scriptures. That's fine. The concept is unmistakably and unavoidably there. What I mean by that is scripture repeatedly reveals that God is absolutely one in essence. And yet he's revealed as three in person. It means there is only one God. And this God reveals himself in a perfect unity of relationships, Father, Son and Spirit. And while there is distinction between the persons, what I mean by that is the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There is an indivisibility in terms of the essence. That is, the Father is God. 
The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Here's a picture. It's what I would call, it's the unavoidable trinity. You can't help but get it in the scriptures. If you read the scriptures closely, this is how God reveals himself. Leave it up there for a minute, Danny, just so people can digest it. What we see in this verse then, when Jesus is praying, is the Son communicating with the Father, communing with the Father, which, given their profound unity from eternity, makes perfect sense. It's not wrong to say that Jesus was praying to God. He is. Perhaps it's more intelligible or helpful to say the Son is praying to the Father. He is, with whom he shares a divine essence, the divine essence, singular. If it's making your head hurt, that's okay. It's, okay. it's, it's the, reason, like the reason that the concept of the Trinity is so difficult to understand is because it defies any analogy. Do you realize that? What I mean is there's nothing else like God that we can point to and say, well, God's like this. He's not. (laughs) He's completely other, holy and distinct. People have tried to, oh, he's an egg. Oh, he's a stool. Oh, he's an ice cube. No, (laughs) they are all just sort of modern versions of ancient heresies because God by nature is, there is nothing else like him. Holy and distinct. He is his own in this, he's on his own in this sense. But like we said last week, though he is completely other, he is not unknowable. He is not completely unknowable. In fact, here we see something so profound as God the, as God the Son expresses his deep communion with God the Father through prayer empowered by God the Spirit. That is an awesome picture of the Trinity right there. But it also restores to us a Godward notion of prayer. Essentially, if God the Son finds it necessary and appropriate to spend extended periods in dedicated, focused prayer with his Father, then what excuse could you possibly have for not valuing it in the same way? What possible reason could I give for why I don't spend more time in serious, dedicated prayer? And I don't mean prayer as a magic talisman. I don't mean it as a robotic ritual. I don't mean it as, you know incantations and rhythms. I mean, you can see this, and this, this is not uncommon in lots of different religions. In modern-day examples, if you go to uh, Israel to the Wailing Wall, you'll see the people at the Wailing Wall rhythmically chanting, praying. If you go to any sort of Muslim country, you'll hear the sirens go off or the call to prayer five times a day. Everyone hits the deck in the same fashion, same prayers. There's, this is not unknown in New Age expressions of, I always know, forget how to say it, transcendental, it sounds like some sort of root canal, uh, meditation, you know that idea of, But Jesus here, his example works against that notion of a robotic or a formulaic prayer of some sort of ecstatic experience. Instead, he demonstrates a deep, personal, sustaining form of prayer. That he would spend all night in prayer with his father and still go to work the next day, so to speak. This is the Godward notion we ought be aiming for. The Godward notion of prayer we ought be aiming for. Anytime, anywhere, about anything, God is accessible to us by his spirit now through his son. I'm not talking about an every night prayer vigil forever, but I'm talking about those moments in the middle of the night when you wake up. What's stopping you from actually thinking? What what are you thinking about? What are you spending your time doing? You can be praying to God. That's amazing. Are you making the best use of the privileged access you have to the prayer, to pray to the God of the universe? And if not, why not? 
You've been gifted this access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It's better than Dad giving you the keys to the Ferrari or giving you the, car, uh, the, the code to the, you know, the, the family vault. Don't neglect this. It's better than that. Jesus restores a Godward notion, not just of himself, but of prayer. We need to see that. We need to use that. Moving on. Jesus restores a Godward notion of discipleship and leadership. In fact, look at it there with me um, in verses 13 to 16. Starting at 13, it says, When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. And then I won't read out the names that Luke records, the names that we've already heard Emma read out for us. Now, I want to skip over a little bit the, uh, the difference between a disciple, a disciple rather, and an apostle here. You should have discussed that in Bible study groups as well. But I want to jump straight to the idea that Jesus, his selection and his appointment of 12 apostles, he is restoring a Godward notion of leadership or discipleship and leadership. And it's radically different both in that day and age, just as it is in our day and age. In short, what I mean by that is, contrary to the common belief and practice in our day and age, you know, that's sort of saying it's not about what you know, but who you know. Well, here Jesus is saying, no, it's not about what you know or who you, who you know, but who you're known by. There's a distinct difference there. What I mean is, look down that list. Jesus chose the most unlikely bunch of blokes for discipleship and leadership. I mean, it made as little common sense in that day as it does today. Just look at the list there. If you read it, and it doesn't tell us here in the verses where you've got to read behind the text a little bit, but you've got a bunch of fishermen who are uneducated. You've got a tax collector. He's a, he's a traitor. He's despised. You've got a, a, a fanatic or a crazy. You've got Simon the Zealot. I mean, this is the kind of guy who wants to knife people. <laughs> he would be known as a domestic terrorist in today's day and age. Jesus picks one of them. And then you've got a bunch of blokes. And if you actually try to look through those other lists and you read those names, Philip, Bartholomew, uh, James, son of Al... What can you tell me about those guys? What I mean by that is, if you read the scriptures, there's not heaps said about these fellas. In other words, they're a bit unknown. There's nothing that significant necessarily about these other men that is so noteworthy that either Luke or John or Mark or Matthew has sort of stopped and go, oh, that son of Alpheus, what a gun he was. Tell you what, no, no. See, Jesus chose a bunch of misfit, ragtag nobodies like you and me. Do you see the implication here? Jesus chose the bunch of people who are the most unlikely for both discipleship and leadership, apostleship. That means there's hope for people like you and me too. People who needed to be taught humility enough to realise and recognise that they are nothing and have nothing but that which God gifts them with and that which God will use them for. And he's still doing the same thing today. He's still calling people out to follow him, be disciples of him. My question is, have you learnt the humility by, that humility by God's grace to recognise there's no other way? You see, Christian disciples and Christian leaders, they ought be, they ought be the most humble people on earth. Christian people ought be the most humble people on earth because if you're a Christian, then you should have realised and you should know with clarity the hopelessness and the helplessness of your plight without God. It's part of the reason you want on. It's part of the reason you're following Jesus. The disciples and the apostles had to learn this often through the most difficult circumstances. Now, just think about that for a minute. Beatings, oppositions, threats, poverty, prison, 
you name it, they copped it. And the truth is you and I need to learn this sort of thing too. What I want to say is that there isn't any cost or hardship too big to bear to make learning humble dependence not worth it. Do you understand what I mean by that? I love big long sentences. You know that. I mean there isn't a cost or hardship that is too great if it leads you to learn how to depend on Christ more. And I mean this sincerely. Mental health difficulties, relationship breakdowns, financial hardships, health scares, direct opposition of various kinds. If the end result of these is an increase in your awareness and your dependence on God and an increase or an introduction to the contentment and the peace that passes understanding that only Christ can bring, if that's the result, then it's worth it. It doesn't make those things pleasant. Hear me right on that. It doesn't make them fun. It just makes them worth it. But I think the problem we have, folks, is when people like us who go through trials, who go through hardships, who go through difficult moments, when we fail to recognize how it can and ought grow us more Christ-like, there's a real tragedy here. That The tragedy is when people like us, when we fixate on our pain or the hardship and become the perennial victims of our own circumstances, even when we're sometimes, maybe even often, the perpetrators of our own circumstances. And rather than seeing or hearing hardship as the loudspeaker of God yelling out to our need for him, we treat that hardship as either punishment or evidence that God, maybe he isn't so good or isn't so powerful. Have you ever been tempted down that track? It's not uncommon. You're not alone. What I want to say, though, is, well, let me quote C.S. Lewis, pain is God's megaphone. In, the, in his book called The Problem of Pain, that's exactly how C.S. Lewis describes it. In fact, here's a, a longer quote. I should have put it up and I forgot to. Sorry about that. But this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, God whispers to us in, the, in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, just think about that for a minute. Hardship is used of God to get your attention. For you to see your need for him more clearly and depend on him more deliberately. Pain is God's megaphone. But how do you respond to those times? How do you respond to the hard times, the the times of difficulty? Are you prone first to complaint? This is not fair. I deserve better. Why God? Why me? Or by God's grace and by his spirit, are you able to recognize that even in the most dire of circumstances, God is not out of control, but is the one calling you deeper into dependence on him through that? That no matter what the circumstances, you're not there by accident. You're not there without the full knowledge of God. And in fact, he is screaming out to you in this, through this, for your good. Tell me, how could you or how would you deal with the hard moments of life differently if you genuinely saw this, if you genuinely believed this? And again, hear me clear, I am not saying we ought like the hard and horrible seasons. Cancer sucks. Sickness is awful. Relationship breakdowns are painful and exhausting. Mental health battles, terrifying and confusing. I spoke to a lady this week, someone who I have not spoken to for maybe 30 plus years, whose little niece has just been, uh, she's only a couple months old, 
she's uh, they've discovered a rare genetic condition which means that she has a very limited time on earth there's no celebration in that folks there is no room for some sort of false piety or stiff upper lip nonsense this is for your good no there's no there's no room for that this is horrible this is devastating and yet how could you, how could they, how could you better cope through this kind of horror if you're able to grasp onto the truth that God is not absent from these circumstances but present despite these circumstances and there is genuine hope and growth for godliness through these circumstances? Not for pleasant pleasure, pleasant pleasure sake, but for future glory's sake. You see, that kind of idea is an absolute game changer. That kind of idea, that kind of insight makes life enormously different. And it's exactly what Jesus wants to say in the next bit of our passage. In fact, this is where Jesus moves on when he restores to us a right, and in fact, I want to say a Godward notion of blessing and woe. Did you see it there in those verses? Jesus turns these commonly held concepts of blessing and woe, he turns them completely on, his head, on its head. Now, again, he's not speaking literally here. These are spiritually understood. I think this is more obvious in Matthew's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's Luke's little sort of um, briefer version. But have a look at verses 20, 20, 20 to 23. I'm not going to read them out in, in full, but you'll get the sense as I, as I go through this bit. Basically, the question is, are you poor in spirit? In other words, do you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God? If you are, then you're likely also hungry for something greater and deeper and more significant than a steak, chips and Diane sauce can provide. You're hungering probably for something more profound than even the real privilege and joy of a good health, a loving relationship and limitless earthly possessions. You're hungering for something deeper, I hope, at that rate. And when you acknowledge that hunger, it will likely lead you also to a state of almost perpetual mourning deep inside at the frustration of sin yet unconquered of the effect of sin day-to-day in, in living, like we said, sickness, death, horror, of bad habits that are as yet untamed, of poor character traits that keep resurfacing, that not only make it difficult to relate to other people, but make you realise your personal desperate need of God's grace and his goodness, of his forgiveness through Jesus. And of course, I'm speaking with, uh, from experience on that front. I live with Tiana, poor character traits, she's got heaps. Okay, that's another one of mine. Oh, my gosh. But Jesus is saying, if, if you recognize that sort of thing, spiritual bankruptcy, a deep hunger for righteousness that you don't yet possess in and of yourself, if you recognize that this leads you to a state of kind of perpetual mourning or sadness or just devastation at your own stupidity and sinfulness, Jesus is saying you're blessed. Blessed in the sense of favoured by God. That's what, the, that's what the meaning blessed is. You're favoured by God because he's given or giving you a right understanding of your lack. Because he is given or giving you a right understanding of your failings and therefore he is giving, given or giving you a notion of your desperate need for him. And it's at that same moment that he is pointing you to that mind-boggling, unimaginable, undeserved restoration through Jesus. His gift to those who know they're broken. You see, Jesus' restoration plan is for us too. Jesus restores those who recognize their deepest need. And his promise of restoration is not so that you look shiny on the outside now. 
It's not to make you successful in the immediate sense. It's not even to make you comfortable for the present time. But his is a plan of restoration on a cosmic level. Do you realize that? Jesus is about restoring people to a fitness for eternity, for everlasting life, genuine peace with God. A genuine peace with God that lasts or extends beyond death, whether that death comes at the age of 2, 10 or 200. You see, it's through Jesus' death in your stead that you can be made new through his resurrected life. His death becomes your death. His new life becomes new life. That's cosmic restoration. And it's this restoration that is ultimate. This is the place for ultimate contentment. It's the restoration to a right relationship with your God and maker. And God in his mercy will humble people through whatever circumstances, pains and trials necessary, and he commits no violence in doing so. Do you realize that? He humbles people through whatever circumstances necessary, painful trials, hardships, and he commits no violence in doing so. Now, that's an extraordinarily profound claim and concept. That is a truth that you will find nowhere outside of the Christian gospel of Christ. And it leads to a profound new ability to live in the now, even though the trials of this earthly life remain, because the fuel for godly perspective and godly contentment is anchored outside of present circumstances in the completed work of Christ on behalf of his people. It is life-changing stuff. Do you know it personally? I'm coming to come back there because before we look at the examples of this profound change, that's the under, under the heading of restoring a capacity for godly well, listening, loving and listening. But I also want to make, the, the, uh, make plain the reverse side of the coin here in those verses 20 to 26. You see, we've just looked at what Jesus says it is to be blessed, favoured of God, to recognise your spiritual bankruptcy and need of him. But don't miss the opposite truth bombs that Jesus is dropping here in verses 24 to 26. I mean, what does it really mean to be woeful before God? Did you notice how how Jesus mirrors the ideas of verses 20 to 23 in 24 to 26? Did you notice that? Verse 20, blessed to the poor. Verse 24, woe to the rich. Verse 21, blessed to the hungry. Verse 25, woe to you who are well fed now, and so on. Each blessing is mirrored with a pronouncement of woe for the opposite. And given that, it's only reasonable to suggest we ought to understand and apply Jesus' words here in a similar way. That is, not strictly speaking in a literal sense, what I mean is that you know, people who are rich in a, in a monetary sense are all cursed and woeful and by definition headed for hell. No. <laughs> but rather we need to understand that the spiritual edge to this, the spiritual edge to this, edge to this idea of richness and hunger and personal happiness and favoured status in public, that people, it includes people like us. It's why it's so important. In fact, we need to take stock of this, folk. Look at this, verse 24. To consider yourself spiritually rich by your own means or to assume that your earthly resources and riches somehow equate to a spiritual wealth, that is dangerous ground. Jesus is saying that is a woeful position to be in. I don't care how many zeros are on the end of your bank balance. Or verse 25, to consider yourself full and well-fed in a spiritual sense, in and of yourself. That is, you're already fully woke spiritually, 
with nothing left to learn or develop in your pursuit of God and righteousness, or to think that your material possessions, including a full pantry, equate to something similar, that's dangerous ground. Jesus is saying this is a woeful position to be in. Or verse 25, to be someone who sees occasion only for laughter in their own spiritual plight. Or that their personal happiness and fulfillment level is an indicator of spiritual health. That's dangerous ground. Jesus is saying that is a woeful position to be in. Or verse 26, to have everyone think well of you. To have everyone constantly big you up for your spiritual insight and wisdom. For you to have never had someone have to correct or sharpen you or, God forbid, rebuke you. Jesus says that's dangerous ground. That's how Israel treated false prophets. That's how Israel treated the prophets who just said what the people wanted to hear, not the truth of what God was actually saying. And Jesus says that's a woeful position to be in. And I hope you realize, folks, I'm taking the time to labor this again because there's every potential for us people here today to fall into these categories. Do you realize that? In our comfortable existence in Australia, in our hashtag blessed I mean that in the worldly sense, lives in Wagga. Let's be honest, this room is filled with people who by any measure or worldly comparison are materially rich, physically well-fed, privileged with high levels of personal joy and satisfaction and generally well thought of by others. That's all of us, I want to suggest. And while there is nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves, in fact, praise God that we share in these privileges, but if for a second you think that those physical things are a barometer for your spiritual health, for your spiritual maturity, or for your spiritual fulfillment or contentment, friends, that is extremely dangerous ground. And Jesus is saying to you, woe, woe to you. I mean, I want to say it in both ways. Woe and woe. You need to wake up. They are not a substitute. They can never be a substitute for the genuine restoration and eternal blessing of God through Jesus, which first requires humbly acknowledging your lowly position before your God, your spiritual bankruptcy, regardless of your worldly material or physical means. Friends, I hope you're feeling the pinch here. I hope you're feeling that this warning is really super sharp at us. If you've never considered the spiritual destitution of your state before God personally as an individual based on your life performance, then it's time to think again. And and I say that not to force you into some sort of depression or self-loathing. No, I say that to help you see your need for Christ and the joy and the comfort of his unconditional grace and mercy for those who recognize they need it. Or if you're not regularly saddened by the str- your struggle with sin in life, and if you're not actively hungering for holiness, empowered by God's Spirit through the riches of Christ, if, you're not already, if you are already content with your Christ-likeness, then it's time to think again. Not to force you into a state of depression or self-loathing, but yet you might be enabled for God's glory and for your good to express a what I want to call a healthy intolerance with the slow nature of your sanctification. (laughs) There is such thing as a righteous indignation that you aren't yet what you were all you were made to be in Christ. Praise God you're not what what you were, that in Christ you can genuinely be at peace with God now and for eternity, 
But don't dare use that as an excuse to take your foot off the pedal or to grow complacent about shaping and changing your life to honour and be oriented God would in every aspect. Do you see the difference? Feel the challenge, folks. Feel the encouragement and don't miss the comfort of Christ in this, friends. There is all of those three things happen at the same time. And so, you, and so you don't. Hear the last section of Jesus' teaching this morning then. Almost as if he's providing a bit of a diagnostic list, if you like, a little test of worked examples detailing exactly how his restoration of the concepts of blessings and woes or play out practically in the lived life. It's under that last heading in your outline. Jesus restores a Godward notion of listening, living and loving. And I want you to get a right sense of just how countercultural this is again. Not just when Jesus speaks this at the first, but still today. In fact, the kind of response that Jesus is calling people to, it's not just difficult. I think it's humanly speaking impossible. (laughs) I think it's humanly speaking impossible, but for the supernatural assistance that God gives his people by his spirit. Now, I've listed it under three headings there, three categories, a Godward notion of listening, living and loving. But recognize off the bat, Jesus first addresses people who are listening. Verse 27, but to you who are listening, I say. Now, why did Jesus say it like that? Is it because he had become aware that he'd lost half the audience somewhere <laughs> through the, the Sermon on the Mount? Now, if you guys are still with me, all right, I'm talking to you now. Is that what he did? Was it because some people were starting to busy themselves with, you know, what we would call the modern equivalent of the Facebook feed on the smartphone? I've seen people do that in church. It's not a good look. Maybe Jesus was aware of something similar. Or was it because people have the capacity to listen but not hear? Was it because there is something bizarre that goes on in humanity that even when we're making solid eye contact, even when we're writing notes perhaps, there is a capacity in humans for things to go, what do we say, in one ear and out the other? And I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that everyone will be able to identify with that. It happens to me when I'm reading my Bible. Do you ever have that experience where I'm reading along and suddenly I realize that despite the fact I verbalized every word on the page, I haven't got a clue what I just read. I went off somewhere in the distance. My mind had want. Does it happen to you? It happens to me. And do you know what? That, 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 that's the problem here. Don't let it happen now. Don't let it be the case now. A Godward notion of listening is not just about being physical present, physically present. Get this, there were plenty of people who physically witnessed Christ who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How is that possible? It's not just about being physically present, but mentally, spiritually present. Ensure that that's your state this moment. Because under that idea of living and loving, well, what does Jesus say? He's got some profound things to say that demand your full attention. Jesus' concept of living well, well, it's really summed up by verse 31, isn't it? Often it's called the golden rule. You will have heard it before. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Man, that is a cracking idea. That is a good maxim. That is a worthwhile uh, little ditty to live your life by. How are you going with it, by the way? Because I suck. Be careful to note as well, it's not do to others as they've done to you. It's not a tit-for-tat idea. It's treat people the way you'd like to be treated. That is with dignity, respect, fairness and generosity. 
And that last one, that idea of generosity or or grace, that is so desperately important and so desperately needed and at the same time so desperately missing from our culture. Do you realize that? In a culture that sort of just feeds off outrage, who's ever the most outraged, they're the offended party. They're the right by definition. But if you are able to realize you are a person who makes mistakes, sometimes even willingly makes mistakes, plans to make mistakes, and if you're honest, you do that too, then you ought also be a person who realizes that you will need others to be gracious and generous with you at times. And you need to be people who are willing, sorry, you will need people who are willing to treat you better than you deserve. That is the concept of grace. It's how God treats us in Christ and it's exactly what we need and it therefore ought be the way that we are willing to treat others as a right response to the grace that we've been given by God. What does it look like in practice? Well, it's those other verses before it there, 27 to 30. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Even valuing generosity over justice. Now, as I said, That's not just difficult, humanly speaking. I think that's impossible. I think it cuts against every fibre of natural instinct that demands equity, that desires eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And and Jesus, what he's saying here, does not undermine justice wholesale. God is a God of justice, but he rather elevates grace. If you know you'll need mercy, be merciful. If you know you'll need grace, be gracious. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Friends, are you that kind of person? By God's Spirit, has he shaped, has he reshaped, has he restored and reformed your understanding of your need for mercy and therefore your need to be merciful, of your need for grace and therefore your need to be gracious? Or are you the type of person who holds the grudge, that would rather keep the fires of a personal feud stoked than take Jesus seriously and seek to end that kind of enmity through undeserved kindness? Friends, it's not easy and it won't come naturally. It's supernaturally gifted to those who ask. Let me give you a quick example of it. Back in the day, and I'm I'm not sure where he ranks, and it actually doesn't matter, the Green River Killer, a serial killer in America. In 2003, there's a chap who was charged with the murders of 48 young women. At his sentencing in 2003, families of the victims were given the opportunity to address him personally in court. The victims, sorry, the family of the ones that he had murdered. And as you can imagine, there was a considerable amount of emotion, of pain, even anger and outright hatred expressed to this chap. That was until a man, and he comes up on the screen here, named Robert Rule, was allowed to speak. His teenage daughter had also been a victim of this chap. His statement was pretty short. He said, Mr Ridgway, there are people here who hate you, and I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, And what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You're forgiven, sir. He didn't call for this man's release. He didn't say it was okay. He took Jesus seriously. And as one who had been forgiven much, he chose to forgive. That's not natural. In fact, it's amazing. You can watch the clip of this online. You can see that as the, uh, the other victims' families are absolutely spitting venom at this chap, I hope you rot in hell and I hope you live for a long time in horrible misery. He, the, the killer, he is stone-faced until the moment that man stands up and says, you're forgiven, and he bursts into tears.
Jesus underpins all this with a restoration of a Godward notion of loving. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into this. I'm going to largely sort of skip past this, except to point out again that Jesus is pushing his people to shape their love for others in the fashion of God's love for them. It's unmerited. It's merciful. And it's towards people who are otherwise, verse 35, ungrateful and wicked. That's the kind of love that God's calling people to. That's the kind of love that Jesus is expressing his people, sorry, saying his people ought to express. You see, even Hitler loved his mum. I'm sure Ivan Milat made someone a cup of tea once. One of his friends. You see what I'm saying? If you just love those who love you, you're no better than the sinner. God's calling for Jesus is calling you to do something much more profound. Do you love like that? It actually brings me to that final point and the final question that I want you to take home. You see, Jesus' restoration of prayer, of, of discipleship and leadership, of understanding for blessings and woe, of listening, of living, of loving, it's an impossibly high standard, isn't it? And what's required first is a complete restoration of your heart and mind, God would, which is exactly what Jesus comes to do for those who recognize they need it. So friends, if you're here today, if you're here today and you're already a Christian and Christ has begun that process of restoration in your life, then for God's sake, and I mean that genuinely, not blasphemously, for God's sake, please don't take your foot off the pedal. Please don't be afraid or confused or angered when in the process of restoration, Jesus comes in and knocks a few walls down in your life. Rather, keep praying and keep praising him. Keep asking for the want to want, the want to want to change every and any aspect of your life as a lived response to his grace to you. And of course, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, and yet you realize maybe that you need that kind of restoration from the inside to the outside, then Jesus is the bunny. He's the man. Come to him. Come to Jesus. He's the one. And I'd love to see if there's anyone out there that actually is in that space. Come and talk to me after the service or talk to the person you've come with, a Christian friend you know. Don't leave today with questions about that. Let's pray as we, as we wrap up, folks. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would do for us what is necessary, anything and all things that are necessary to restore us, to renew our hearts and minds, that we would come to see our desperate need for Jesus, our desperate need for your grace and your mercy expressed through him, that we might be part of that cosmic renewal, the renewal of all things under Christ's headship for our good and for your glory. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.